Welcome to the Lars Resort again. Still with me, Lars Watson. Still brought to you by Betson. We're back. It is the last episode, the last part of... Uh, not That That sounded scary. It's not the last episode of the Lars Resort. That would be the shortest part. No, no, no. It'll go on forever. But it's the last part of my marathon chat with international man of mystery, uh, giant football brain, experienced recruitment pro to Christian Carlson. Now, did this chat go on for too long? No. <laughs> if you think so, you're a fool. And I completely disagree with you. Uh, like I've said in episode one in the intro, uh, for me, this is just a treasure trove of like, just football knowledge and insight. Uh, and there's more uh, of that coming at you in this, the third episode of our little mini series. And, you know, there are some super, super knowledgeable and insightful people who work in the football media, you know, commentators, podcast people, people who write. And over the coming months, I hope to have some of my favorites of those people on the pod. But, you know, what? there is a thing to be said uh, for, for hearing from people who actually work in the actual football industry as well. We don't always get that because many of them are are not too keen on, on being too opinionated in the media uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but I do think that makes content like this kind of extra worth listening to, uh, to, to, to Christian actually, you know. He doesn't just fire opinions out onto the internet. He works with this stuff. So, he, you know, it's one of those things I certainly feel like I should just kind of sit down and listen uh, to what he has to say. So, again, through the magic of editing, we will jump straight back into the top 10. We've reached the top 10. We've reached right. the top 10. Um, I hope you're still, like, you're up for this. It's, it's gone on a bit, but I'm feeling energetic. I'm ready to crack on with the with with the top ten uh, in tenth. I actually briefly was there a thing in your head where like this is when it gets serious by top ten. You know, you got to be very sure about who's in the top ten and who's just outside the top ten. Yeah, it it is uh, <laughs> it is the most visible and uh, traditionally the most heavily discussed part of the list, which is mm. for obvious reasons. But I, I I felt quite comfortable with the top ten this season. And um, most of the inevitable criticism has been players that didn't make the list. And mm. there seems to be, and if I kind of ignore the people with, um, you know, on Twitter with the Real Madrid uh, avatar <laughs> in the profile picture <laughs> and, uh, you know, accounts which are obviously, one, haven't read the, the piece, two, are mainly trolls uh apart from them i think um yeah there seems to be some kind of consensus yeah no, that, that's good to know well certainly in 10th and it is remarkable but we have a brighton and whole albion player in 10th on a list over the top under 21 players on the planet if you go back 10 years that would have sounded bizarre but but this is this is where we are moise casedo is the tenth most, uh, tenth best under twenty-one player in the world? Does it sit well with you, Lars? Or? No, I'm happy. I'm happy with it. He's the kind of midfielder I like, all action, uh, and I and I think it's I think it's amazing that uh, uh, that Brighton are what they are and are doing what they're doing. And I I like that they just went straight on the back foot and they were just no, we're not selling him. Just go away, take your money, and 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 go away. Yeah, it was. I think one of the most. Um impressive um moves of the transfer window i think <laughs> you know amid all the interest they just said well come back when the transfer window is finished and uh, we'll pick up from there and yeah that worked he signed a new deal and 
and it hasn't affected him. One so they went, we, we, we have enough money. Just go away. We're going to keep the player. <laughs> it's nice to see a club do that. And it's nice to see a club, with all due respect, of, of Brighton's station do that. Absolutely. And um, it is very, very refreshing. And um, But like I said, I'm also impressed with the player in the sense that he just got on with it instead of, you know, soaking or letting the disappointments of um, of a denied move um, affect his game. I think he's picked up and he's, he's doing just as well now as he did in, in the autumn. But it is a remarkable story as well, Lars, that the player that arrived, um, I think, a year ago, um, if I'm not mistaken, and it took him a little bit of time to to um, adapt to the Premier League. They didn't feature him that much in the first um, in the first month last season. I think he yeah he just played eight games and then he even was even loaned uh, loaned out. So he arrived in um, in the winter of twenty twenty one. So two years ago. And he is one of those things that I, I generally hate these stories because m- most players are offered to most clubs all the time. So whenever you see newspaper headlines saying this club could have signed that guy, it's like, well, yes, but that's just kind of doesn't really matter. But in the case of <laughs> Moise Caicedo, he was very heavily on Man United's radar, wasn't he? I think that was actually a transfer that could have happened, if I recall correctly. And it didn't in the end. Yeah, there was Man United and there were also, I think, top clubs in... Um on the continent that, that were um, chasing him. I think the difference is that um, if he had gone to Man United, there is no, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't take it for granted that he would have had the same impact. And nice. I think that's, that's, that's why you're absolutely spot on, Lash, that, the, you know, social media and stuff is full of people as I should have signed this, should have signed this one, this one, this one. But... The advantage that Brighton have got, one, it's a very well-run club with with a pretty distinct philosophy, not just in terms of um, the way they run the club generally, but also in terms of tactics and the idea of how they want to play football. But it's also a peaceful environment. Of course, there are demands of high-level Premier League uh, clubs. There is pressure there too, of course. But... I think when you sign for one of directly with one of the top clubs, I, I don't think you have the same chances of succeeding because you are thrown in at the deep end uh, straight away, and if you don't perform to maximum ability after a few months, you the club will be looking at upgrading, and the supporters will be disappointed, um, and the media will start questioning your transfer strategies. So I think Brighton had a very, very clear plan. They would they signed the player, gave him a little bit of uh, Premier League experience before they loaned him out to Belgium. And um, they knew that that would serve him well. And then this season has come out like in full force, Lars. And I, I'm yeah. absolutely, I'm, I'm one of his biggest fans. I think what impresses me the most is the, well, again, there's the, the, the physical uh, aspect, you know, covers a lot of ground, is always active, is always alert. But there's the simplicity and um, the art of solving situations effectively 
and mm. to pick up the right spaces and when he's uh, offering an outlet to uh, when when the game is a bit kind of um, sticks a bit for Brighton he's always there as um, to provide the out ball and then he will switch and then you know the flow resumes uh, that that kind of it can be a little bit of an underrated um, quality I think because no, people sure. are looking for the people are looking for the spectacular um you know individual actions but that that skill is in my opinion so important and he does it so well and he does it with a consistency which um is quite rare as well Lash. he's he's 21 as well <laughs> this is uh, for a central midfielder he is remarkably i mean i guess it's a phrase that gets thrown around a bit but he does seem to be a very complete player complete and also low maintenance yeah, he, he gets about with his job. He's consistent. He does it week in, week out, and uh, such an intelligent, um, efficient player. So that matters a lot to me. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, that's again where one thing that shines through is that obviously you have spent quite a lot of time working for actual clubs, and you know the value that's maybe easy to underestimate for us on the outside just how important it is to have people who are easy to deal with and and don't create a problem for you off the pitch and that sort of thing absolutely and um it's 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 not okay there was the a bit of an issue there in january but again i repeat myself but the fact that he just got on with it signed a new contract and now and now he's uh, what is he, in the semi-final of the fa cup and uh, possibly chasing a champions league spot uh, with brighton i think it's it's a tre- tremendous um, achievement. No, I do think that's a really good point, actually, getting straight back into it after the sort of inevitable friction in in January. Uh, at ninth, uh, Josko Gvardio, who's an interesting, interesting case. He kind of was anointed as the sort of... Um, well, he got a lot of praise at the World Cup, and rightly so. He was incredible uh, in that tournament and, and certainly is a defender who has a lot of qualities. I guess if people want to pick at something is, you know, defenders from the Bundesliga, question mark. But clearly someone who has an incredible amount going for him and you've put him as high as ninth. I feel it's quite, <clears throat> it's, it's quite unfair to discount, not discount him. You didn't do that last, but I need to play devil's advocate a little bit for this to become a conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he happens to play for for RB Leipzig. They happen to be in the Bundesliga, and he happens to be a a wonderful uh, centre back, highest rated on the on the list. I think, um, well, again, left footed, and what a left foot it is. Uh, short passes, especially the. Um, Crossfield the, the switches, which are mm-hmm. brilliant, struck with such uh, with such precision and the right pace and power. Um, excellent at playing out from the back. Um, he's got great pace over uh, longer distances. I think um, you know he can pick a pick a sprint with with most you know the quickest forwards around. As many. Um, even world-class centre-backs, he, he can struggle on the turn, a little bit static, um, but that is in the nature. He's a big guy, and um, apart from Timber, we talked about uh, 10 minutes ago, who is very quick on the turn. I think that is something that 
to a certain extent comes with the territory for for a centre back. But great in the air, also very assertive, plays with authority, personality. It wasn't great. I will uh, admit to that, uh, Lars. That during my work with this list, they took that seven nil crushing <laughs> at, at at Manchester City. Um, but to me, that was more of a collective. Um, collapse rather than down to individual defenders um i i I was there and it felt like one of those games that city have occasionally where they're so sharp and they move the ball so well that the opponents just never get near you and it it just becomes really difficult and things fall apart and city have five six if i don't know the exact number but it certainly feels like city have a, a couple of games like that every season and sometimes it's against someone like Bournemouth, but sometimes it's against really good teams as well. I mean, really good teams have been taken apart by City before. So I, I feel like that's it's harsh to hold that too much against. It was a bit of a freak, um, freak game. Um, but then again, he did play. He did play well in the first game against City mm. in uh, in Germany. He he was impressive against Real Madrid, I think, uh, earlier in the competition. Started the Bundesliga season a little bit rusty, but after the World Cup, uh, apart from the apart from the the semi final, wasn't it against Argentina where he came up against Messi a couple of times there? Mm-hmm. Um, he's been he's been exceptionally strong. Um, and what I also like about him is that he's decisive when he he he, he kind of reads the opponents very well, and then when he goes for it, he he, he just goes for it. He doesn't hesitate or he has a natural authority that um, you rarely see in twenty-one-year-old um, defenders. Uh, so, aside from my, frankly, slightly disingenuous Bundesliga trolling, I just I need to spice up the conversation a little bit. Uh, I don't think anyone's objecting much to him being the highest-ranked. A defender on this list at number eight a player who i think we're all happy to see uh see back and um, playing football at a very high level again because of course a hugely talented player is florian wirtz of Bayer leverkusen a, a midfielder who an attack in an attacking sense certainly seems to be able to do a, a, a bit of everything if it had been for the injury you know who knows what he would have been at this point he certainly would have been at the World Cup, um, mm. and I think Germany would have um, appeared in a slightly more flattering light with him in the side. Mm. And I do share your uh, joy in seeing him back on the pitch, because um, he is, I think, for me, is one of the players that I enjoy watching the most in mm. European football. The one thing that stands out is the understanding of the game, appreciation of space, technical qualities. And again, it's uh, it's becoming a recurring theme as well. That is not just showing off um, kind of uh, flashy moments, but they are very economical, mm. but and efficient. I think six dribbles per game this season, of which four of um, roughly four of them have um, have come off. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive number per ninety yeah. minutes, and. Um, you know he can he can he can finish with both feet. He's again he's good at timing his runs into the box. Um, these third third man movements that are going back to the uh, esoteric jargon now, Lars. But I'll forgive you. You'll, you're allowed. <laughs> but yeah, the, those runs that are kind of you don't even notice before he gets on the ball in a really good position. 
I think the ability to time those are, are absolutely world class. And, and I mean, the German football in general has been criticized, and there's been a suspicion that they kind of produce too many, in inverted commas, academy players, too many like really tidy, decent, well rounded players who just, you know, for all their skills, are maybe too circumspect, don't make too much enough of an impact, don't take enough risks on the field. Florian Wirtz has all those abilities and is really comfortable with the ball, you know, all of this stuff. But he's always looking to play, as you say, passes that make stuff happen. He's always looking to go past people, create unbalanced situations. He he brings the food to the table. So he goes down. <laughs> he he very much does. And um, there's a lot of carbs and proteins. And again, he broke through at the age of 17, I think. One of the pro- child, uh, you know, youth academy prodigies, but who has been able to, you know, bring this game to senior football as well. I think is is a wonderful playmaker, Adosh. Yeah, and, and then tip of the hat to Leverkusen, who, I mean, he was brought in close to the time when they sold Havertz, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, you, you lose Havertz uh, and then you bring in someone who does a lot of the same things. Um, possibly even better, if I'm allowed to say that, even though Havertz at Leverkusen was quite special as well. Um, number seven on the list, we're getting towards the sharp side here, uh, Gabriel Martinelli, who's had a tremendous development along with a few other Arsenal players this season, still just 21. Um, and a, another player who's had to shrug off a serious injury, but who, who now looks uh, just... <laughs> tremendous in the Premier League for Arsenal. I think he's uh, raised this game um, to unimaginable levels. When I first saw him, when he came from amateur football in Brazil, I had my I had my doubts, and I was wondering what, what's what's this all about? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, what what, what he... were your criticism? Was it the uh, the futsal I... thing? You have a you have a long standing skepticism against players who are like technical, but. Again, they don't bring the carbs. Partly that, but partly the fact that he was completely unknown. I know he'd been he had been offered around to to pretty big European clubs, but they might have passed on the opportunity due to the same thinking that I'm sporting here. But um, I think the first the first season, I think there was a certain unrefined um, edge there, which I didn't know he wasn't aware that he would be able to to polish but that comes with the that also comes with the territory you know he he's not from la masia or mm. or, uh, or or by leverkusen new system or 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 is monaco he's he's from a small club in brazil and mm. and that's also i think along with the fact that he was a bit rough around the edges there was also a little bit of with that comes a bit of excitement because you think mm, this is a late potential late bloomer and he you know arriving at arsenal he'll be able to to work on those um, downsides and um that's exactly what he's done i think is he has a kind of un-brazilian um thing about him which i think is the explosivity so so with martinelli this might be a maybe this is just an aesthetical thing because of the way he runs. He has a sort of slightly hunched, sort of his head slightly forward sometimes. Is there a touch of a Luis Suarez in him, the way he plays? I think he has that. He has a, something about the explosivity, the way he moves, the way he carries the ball. I'm getting sort of slight Luis Suarez vibes off of the guy. <laughs> Definitely. There is a bit of uh, Luis Suarez. And that's where I I 
kind of see him a little bit more like more of an Argentinian Uruguayan player mm-hmm, than a mm-hmm. Brazilian because he's got that explosivity, the ability to, you know, pick up pace so quickly, the acceleration, the way he can just uh, dart past the center back and the you know pick up the ball and race past the center back and the and the and the right back. There's a bit of uh, there's a bit of Suarez, there's a bit of Aguero, there's a little mm. bit of Tevez there. And he also has this thing of shifting the ball from one foot to the other and and cracking off a shot very quickly. That I think sort of and to get it around defenders that that feels very Suarezy and he does it quite a lot. Uh, super exciting player for Arsenal, and, and and Arsenal, you know, obviously for me I don't enjoy saying this out loud, but it is it is good I guess <laughs> to see a club uh, be rewarded for just putting a bunch of young players together and putting faith in them, even if they had a slightly iffy year last year. They th- said, you know, we're going to stick with these guys. We're going to stick with this coach, and they're really being rewarded this year. Where a couple of them having massive breakthrough seasons at the same time, and and Gabriel Martinelli certainly one of them. At six, uh, another. I mean, they're all fantastic players at this point, but uh, another very very good player, Eduardo Camavinga. What a midfielder he is! What a midfielder, and <clears throat> he's been um... left back recently. Yeah. I wonder if he's an ever, ever present on this list. I think he's been included in every every edition um, since he broke through at uh, Rennes at the age of just 16. It's taken him some time to find his kind of uh, role in um, at Real Madrid, also due to the fact that you know he's been moved around a little bit, also for France, featuring at left back, which I thought he with a few exceptions uh, on the whole i think he dealt pretty well with that but i think now playing as a holding midfielder being able to di- di- dictate the rhythm um and you know given a bit more strategical role and responsibilities i think it fits him perfectly and we can see what a delightful player it is yeah and he has he, he combines i mean the physicality is obviously eye-catching but I'm, I'm glad you point out that he is also a very smart player on the ball you know makes good decisions frankly uh, a sort of a real madrid midfield in the future with him and, and chuameni and then maybe even valverde coming back into central midfield i mean he is he was a midfielder certainly before they started using him out wide uh that's that's going to be no fun at all to play against for opponents for a very long time going forward, I think. Much like you, it can't be compared to Arsenal, but mm. you see how Real Madrid have kind of strategically built while still being successful. They've managed to, while winning uh, La Liga titles and Champions League trophies, they still managed to kind of undergo some kind of a slow rejuvenation process because Kroos and Modric obviously aren't going to play forever but no I think now with Kamavinga being you know uh, eased into the team and playing with confidence and authority I think that will make possibly future contract talks with um, I don't know how long Modric will keep going for but who knows he might still be around in three or four years but still with um, the the way they've 
rejuvenated the team, starting also back from you know Rodrigo and um, Vinicius Junior Valverde. You you mentioned. I mean, you can see already now that this you know the the new world class team has been yeah. kind of unfolding seamlessly in front of our eyes. Really, absolutely. I, I do feel though that it's almost as if they've had to because Cross and Modric have have, have kept their standards up for longer than I think anyone would have expected. They've had to find places for these guys. Like they've had to give Valverde minutes as a right winger because you need he's so good. You have to have the guy on the pitch, so you have to find a place for him. And and there's almost a touch of that with Camavinga actually playing a little bit at left back for for El Madrid as well. Because you need to get him on the field. <laughs> you know, he's too good. Uh, but of course the future is incredibly bright. Uh, there for that team uh, certainly and and we talk a lot about like uh, intangible conceptual generalities things very specifically he played a huge role in them uh, getting to the Champions League final and winning it with those appearances off the bench uh, about a year ago last spring really injecting life into some ties that I really don't think Real Madrid would have won without him so you know, a, a brilliant player for them. We're into the top five. And, and really, as I said, at the very, very beginning of this session, one or two episodes ago, depending on how I edit this, <laughs> you you do, you do you are filled with joy to an extent when you go through this because there's so many exciting young players who are going to give us a lot of joy as neutrals and as football enthusiasts in the years to come. And the top five, they're all just amazing players. And... At number five, again, what a remarkable uh, development he's had. The kind of uh, responsibility that he's had to take on at the age of 18 is, is is pretty incredible when you stop to think about it. But in every crisis lies an opportunity. And as much as things have been turbulent for Barcelona the last couple of years, they have unearthed some incredible players. And one of them is Gavi. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start with these Barcelona players because they are so... They're just so mature, and uh, the way they adapt to senior football is just um, mind-blowing at times. Gavi, I think, also was a part of this. Um, I think he came through in that quite turbulent uh, autumn, mm. and uh, he's just hung on. He's still there, and um, <laughs> not only is he still there, he's one of the list of the top 50 players in the world, uh, full stop. I think he would be, he'd probably be top 20. Top fifteen, maybe even, and his progress has been so, so um, incredible that it's it's just hard to describe it. And it's it's also the the higher you get on this uh, list, Lash, the more difficult it becomes to point out obvious weaknesses in their game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with with him in particular. Yeah, and. Um, because they're so well schooled, uh, the understanding of the game—it's it's such sky high levels that. But but in terms of, uh, but I'm glad you honed straight in on his maturity because obviously, listen, we're talking about like you say, generational talent out of La Masia. Anyone listening who watches football knows that there are certain things that comes with that in terms of technical quality, spatial awareness, passing quality, all this sort of stuff. But the thing that completely like we are expecting Barcelona to produce these players fairly regular semi-regularly at least but it just blows my mind with Gavi the way he sort of had to step into a, a, a club that was in a state of, of crisis uh 
one of the biggest sporting institutions on the planet. I was about to say playing in front of a hundred and however many thousand people. Of course, part of the problem was that a hundred thousand people wasn't weren't turning up. But but you have an unbelievable amount of pressure when he was so young, and he just steps onto the midfield and plays like a twenty eight year old almost from the beginning, and and shows like he just not just that he belongs there, but that he enjoys being there, and it, it's really really extraordinary. Uh, and it's yeah, it's 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 quite crazy. I'm running out of superlatives already, but uh, my God, uh, what a guy! I, I think it might affect younger players um, to a lesser extent. The kind of outside uh, noise and institutional crisis and stuff like that. Did many of these youngsters they just want to play football and they yeah for they, sure they're, they're not really interested in you know when they pick up the you know Marco or uh, newspaper in the morning they don't look at the political stuff or presidential elections or the you know economical the f- financial aspects which we like to discuss you know being pundits and insiders to, to a certain extent they want to enjoy their football and they want to express themselves and um, I think that is maybe the the blessing of well the the treasure that is La Masia really has no, proven, it, 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 has it is a f- to really come to the rescue in very difficult times. It is a fair point. Maybe the key to how he and a few others have dealt with that kind of pressure is that they just don't think about it and it doesn't occur to them. That's probably true. But then you also come to the fact that, again, you're talking about a guy who in his teens is is is, is bossing a midfield against like grown ass men who've been playing for a long time. <laughs> it's 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 remarkable. And we we don't need to go deeper into the, the tactical or the technical um aspects there because there is another player to come and there will be some repetition. But mm. what also impresses me with Gav is that he's also a hard worker. Mm. You know? And that is this incredible blend of fantastic individual qualities um, and being able to blend them into a collective, plus the pressing game and the tracking back and the the tactical discipline. I think in the old days, because I'm old enough to have been kind of on the football scene for pushing 30 years now, Lars. Uh, would you believe? Still, I'm not quite as old as uh, I sound, but uh, <laughs> back in the 90s and maybe 2000s, we're, we're always kind of, when you looked at uh, attacking midfielders or even central midfielders, there would be kind of, there would be some clear areas which they would have, you know, tremendously good defensive uh, work rate. Um, there'd be good ball winners, but they would lack the attacking dimension. And especially for attacking midfielders or wingers, there would always be the trade-off with poor defensive contribution. Mm. Now, these guys here at the top end of the list, they can do it all, Lars. And yeah. um, I think that is just... Um, they're just complete footballers. It, it's remarkable. And, and I guess it's necessary because these sort of quite committed and quite uh, serious pressing systems have become almost, you know, the staple at the highest level. 
So even for technical players, I mean, as we're seeing every year with PSGs that they keep failing in the Champions League because when it comes to the biggest, biggest games, you can't carry people no matter how gifted they are. So young players going through, they know like you can be the most technically gifted player on the planet. You still do need to do the work off the ball because if you don't, there is a ceiling to what you can actually achieve. And, and I guess, I suppose this brings us uh, to the next guy who's another unbelievably gifted player who, who also puts in the work. Could, could he have been a number one on this list if the chips had fallen slightly different in the last 12 months? I don't know. But certainly number four, Jamal Musiala is another unbelievably good player. I felt that there was... Um, we're going to get to the top three now. Um, I, I, can, I promise our very patient um, <laughs> listeners. We will get to the top three, but I felt. I mean, was... I, I, I mean, I was going to do it as a two-parter. This, I'm increasingly certain, this is the third episode. I think this is how it's going to get edited at the end of the day. <laughs> but I feel there was a kind of um, natural gap between three and four, hmm. um, and maybe that's got to do with. Um, I'm. I'm. Um, Lifting your argument now, uh, Lars, that he plays for Bayern Munich and that he plays in the Bundesliga, which is, I would say, slightly kinder to attacking players. And you do get more space and you do get the, the opportunity to roam and you get the opportunity to to express yourself to a higher extent than, for example, in the Premier League. So, maybe, but again, that's, you can't hold that against <laughs> players no. either. But... Having said that, I feel Musiala is um, is the complete midfielder, mm. uh, or, and he's the complete winger, and you could say he's the complete second striker. Yeah, <laughs> he and, is quite something. And it's it's hard to pin him or to label him as this, that, or the other. But um, ultimately, it is the sign of a highly intelligent footballer because he has that role appreciation and it's a sign of a technically gifted and mentally strong um, footballer too um again it's just a joy to watch naturally talented um so so quick uh, he's, uh the way he carries the ball slides past uh, defenders and maybe or midfielders uh, or but Perhaps the most impressive part is, uh, I think, his um, relational qualities. The the one-touch combination play mm. and the movement uh, around the ball. Again, third-man movements, I think, are exceptional. Um, and his finishing, again, a bit like... Um, Ansu Fati, but he, maybe even more advanced. I mean, the way he finishes, usually low, picks its spot, um, and he has a clear idea in mind before before he's even passed, before he's even set himself off properly. You can tell that he knows what he's going to do and what, what space he's going to pick, where he's going to place the ball. So the scanning abilities are completely off the charts as well and 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 the thing i kind of intimated at is i do wonder you say there's a gap between the top three and number four and i understand the thinking where i think by by the way if you listen to this all the way through you probably have a pretty decent idea of who number one two and three are at this point 
But, but I do wonder, in an alternative universe where, for instance, Germany are a more functional outfit or more functional, more, more well, uh, you know, a team that works. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> find the word there. Uh, a team that's less of a shambles at the World Cup. And, and he's right at the center of it. Um, perhaps he would have been, because I don't think there's, you say there's a gap between three and four. I don't think there's a gap in talent necessarily. Uh, this may be, if you're comparing him to the very, very top players on this list, you know, I, I think he's right up there personally in terms of quality. And, and, and it's interesting to see where he will fit into a Thomas uh, Tuchel team uh, for, uh, for sure. Um, does he have any obvious weaknesses, really? Um, you tell me, Lars. I mean, I... I, <laughs> I can't think of anything. I, I said that, um, I mean, what I... I tried to come up with something, and I and they become a bit um, contrived uh, towards the, the latter parts <laughs> of, the, of the list here. But uh, maybe um, the one thing that I've kind of identify but it might also be tactical reasons that he gets stopped usually um you know towards the end of matches and he tends to i think just this is a little bit anecdotal evidence but mm. he might have a bigger influence towards in the first halves and that his uh, ability to to create a you know full 90 minutes impact on the team ceases a little bit towards the end of the matches but again i'm is not something particularly detrimental by any stretch of the imagination, Lars. But oh, so we're we're grasping at straws. We, we, we are very very hard to find anything that bad to say about Jamal Musiala. But that does lead us into the top three, and it's interesting that you've said there's a gap there. So you have a very clear top three on this. I didn't list. say very clear, but I said I felt that there was okay some kind of a did you spend a lot of time thinking about the order of those three not really i think and this is uh exclusive for the listeners Ooh. i think i might have and that contradicts what i said earlier <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know i'm i'm happy to admit that uh it is uh soul uh lot of soul searching and uh, it's and there is a slight element of recency bias i think that is inevitable in any such settings where you have to kind of cap up a whole year but you know the latter months might have a slightly bigger impact than the you know start of the season i think that's natural but I have to admit that Musiala was third at one point. Mm, mm. So, uh, and I think I had Saka initially number five, even behind uh, Gavi. Mm. But I don't want to talk myself into too much trouble. And <laughs> I know that I know that uh, you are very opposed to recency bias. And no, will, but no, you, I'm, you're going to have a beef uh, beef with me now. No, so I'm, I'm going I'm to stop I'm, there. I'm happy that you've done this. And this is, this is a Spurs fan talking. I'm very happy that you've done this. I completely agree with putting uh, Bukayo Saka as one of the top three, albeit third. And I am frankly very bored of hearing people complain about how Bukayo Saka is underrated. I hear this on the radio and TV all the time in the UK. Well, then rate him then. Like, no one's stopping you. <laughs> but, but <laughs> let's talk now, about how good he is. Let's get to philosophical uh, question before moving on yeah what is underrated and 
what does that consist of? That expression, who are the raters there? Yeah, well, well this, is, th this was kind of my point. I think if you're on 5 Live and you're talking about <laughs> someone being underrated, that is just stupid because that's one of like the main platforms for setting the tone of the football discussion in the country. So just rate him. Just say he's really good. <laughs> it would be my point. Um, I, I wonder, I guess the point they're getting at with Saka, and I guess that's why I'm happy with him being third on this list, is that he is now just an out-and-out out bona fide superstar. Like, he's not a promising young player anymore, really. He is just a star. And there is always a, a period in which our perceptions of a player has to be adjusted. There's usually a period where you look at someone and say, like, oh, yeah, he's really promising. He could get, get really great. And then he has that breakout moment and becomes someone who's just amazing and is great and isn't promising anymore. He's just a star. And I think Saka has made that transition this year. And and maybe it's taken some people some time to catch up, you know. So so we, we talk about him, or some people maybe talk about him as a promising young player, which he's just he's just amazing. Yeah, I think you. Um, thank you for for clarifying uh, that, Lars. Um, and um, I just like to add that uh, for the listeners, and I know that um, you know people are very keen on you know technic the the technical description and. Um, being fed with details and stuff like that. But I think it's also natural that we go a little bit off that when we perhaps earlier in the list where there were that featured players that weren't perhaps, you know, common knowledge to every uh, every listener. Mm -hmm. I think these players are so <laughs> high high profile that we don't need yeah. to kind of go into the minute details of, um, of, of their technical profiles. That was my point. I think even casual fans listening has probably seen Saka play 90 minutes like at least 10 times this season. So you, you know what this player is and what he can do and what he is doing. And, and and really in the piece, I've got the piece in front of me here, you kind of he is the main creative catalyst behind Arsenal's unexpected uh, challenge for the Premier League title. And if you are the main creative force between a team that's unexpectedly on track to win the league at 21, I mean, that in itself is quite some going. Yeah, Erdogan might uh, might not be, you know, he might have an axe to grind with me now. I feel like the, he's uh, more the conductor and, yeah. and Saka is the, 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 the solo violin, huh? Yeah, I think that's that that's fair. Um, instead of going into the the technical aspects and the strengths and the weaknesses, uh, we can return to weaknesses maybe because it's might be less obvious. Um, but I just like to uh, before we move on, I just like to to spend a moment on his mental attributes and his mm -hmm. mental um, qualities because they must be completely top notch. And if you look at his journey from not just the fact that he's a He's originally um, uh, a fullback, a left back, um, and that he went through penalty miss at Wembley in the Euros, and then going from there to partly carrying a team mm. within twelve to eighteen months. I think that is remarkable. I love his um, personality. I think he, he's so down to earth. He seems so, you know, grounded. He seems so good. Mm -hmm. Good values. He hasn't been faced by this superstar reputation which he has um, which he has earned to be fair and he he just seems like a really really nice person as well and low maintenance and keeps learning developing his game and um i think that is uh, definitely worth um, worth some um, 
some credit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, we've spoken a lot about this, about some players on this uh, list here, but it was one of the first things that I really noticed with him last season was even in the periods when Arsenal weren't great, and there were some of those last season, you never saw him become more timid or uncertain. You know, he was a player who would who would always take responsibility. Even in the games when they were struggling, he would pick up the ball, go past the guy, make something happen, you know? He seems very unfazed by... Uh, you say he's unfazed by, by the fame, but he also seems very unfazed by adversity on the pitch, which I think for a young attacking player is is very, very promising because the, the nature of being an attacking player is that you have to try a lot of things that don't come off all the time. That you are going to lose the ball a certain amount of times per game. That is inevitable when you play that position. A certain number of your shots will end up in the stands. And, uh, and he is somebody that doesn't seem to affect his approach to anything at all. And, and he's someone who I think that I certainly get the sense watching Arsenal and got that last year as well. That Saka is one of the players who the, the, the other players will look for. You know, I mean, they, they have a pattern, they have a way of playing, but sometimes football comes back to that thing we all remember from the playground or from the schoolyard at least, is who's the best player on my team? If I have the ball, I'm going to try to find him. Uh, and, and it's always been very clear with, with Saka, again, even through this less brilliant Arsenal periods of last year, is that he is a player the rest of the team were trying to find. Yeah. I think he's um, he's a natural. I mean, due to his, I think, movement, his positioning um, skills, he's always available. And again, going back to the to the improvements, I think um, the the one part is the technical bit, which, and with that, I mean the the ball striking skills. Um, I think have been improved remarkably, which can only be done um through hard work and through repetition which again speaks volume of his um of his uh application and also the tactical aspect you know you 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 see him so often when the um, you know when the ball is out on on the left you can see him timing his movement always that run coming cutting in from from the right and often just slotting the ball under or you know, over the goalkeeper or in the in the in the far corner. So the timing and the tactical um, side of his game has also been improved very much. And again, it was very difficult to find uh, any obvious shortcomings. I pointed out that he can he can drift out of games now and then. Again, it can also be a tactical um, can also be tactical reasons for that. Can be you know sometimes you as you know, footballers are not ro- robots. I mean, they are ultimately they they have spells in which they feel better, or you know, mm. the form might mm. hit peaks here or there. So that that's also natural. But again, I think his contribution, double figures now, uh, goals and assists, the end product and the direct, uh, you know, is always looking forward. There are not no unnecessary touches or you know flamboyancy about this game is 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 just very efficient and uh wonderful footballer and um and above average uh defensively as well i mean that's uh 
I, well, you've mentioned it already, like all the guys in this end of the list are more or less complete in that sense. But uh, he, he certainly there's no shortage of effort in terms of uh, winning the ball back and participating in the, the pressing stuff that Arsenal do. Uh, just just a remarkable player and uh, a remarkable development he's had uh, over the last uh, two years, 18 months, uh, thereabouts uh, for Bukayo Saka. We've got two names left on the list here. The second one... I don't think the order of them is going to be particularly controversial. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But but the second one is, I mean, I mean, we're going to repeat ourselves a little bit, I think, but it, it is Pedri, who is just an absolutely unbelievable player uh, for, for Barcelona. And, you know, it's hokey. It sounds like it should be on, like, a motivational poster somewhere. But you know what? In every crisis, there is an opportunity. This is true. And in the Barcelona crisis, one of the opportunities was that... Uh, they, they they could give a lot of game time to some of these young players and uh, they were thrust right into the limelight and some of them really ran with it. And I'm sure Pedri would have made it anyway. But it has meant guys like Pedri and Gavi has had to take on responsibility much earlier than they might otherwise have done. And it seems to have done them no harm at all. Uh, Pedri is an absolutely unbelievable player and I, I suspect will be uh, one of the sort of top five midfielders in the world for the next decade at least. Definitely. So talented. And, um, you know, I'm getting on, I'm becoming an AI bot now because I keep repeating obvious stuff. And the, before going into the kind of uh, technical description, the, ironically, you know, mo- as most, you know, well-informed listeners, and I know you attract the Kind of the high end of the the. I'd like um, I'd fo- like to fo- think so. Football intelligentsia, last so. I'd like to um, think so. Yeah, I think so too. But funnily enough, he was obviously um, developed at Las Palmas and played the yep. season in um, in the second tier before joining uh, Barcelona. And ironically, he looks maybe even more of a <laughs> La Masia product than any La Masia product. Which yeah, is, which is quite funny. Yeah, I think was it someone got stick recently for referring to him as a La Masia product, but but you can understand why you would make that mistake because having actually not spent much time at La Masia at all, you're right. He is like the most Barcelona of Barcelona players. It's remarkable. The footballer uh, footballing IQ, um, again the appreciation of space, like Gavi, the ability to receive and turn on the half turn and get rid of the marker in one kind of quick flash of technical excellency. It's just astounding, which has become like a bit of a um, new thing. Um, I mean, in the old days, you'd have like the South American prodigies who would, who would do that and you'd just kind of would be gobsmacking. But they just do it so routinely, Yeah, you know? And it wins you, I don't know, three, four, five seconds by just kind of breaking a line through one very, very efficient turn. And that requires what I mentioned, high uh, footballing intelligence and extremely quickly executed um, technical ability, which is the key to the modern gifted footballer is, you know, technique and physique and mental qualities they're all important but you have to be able to execute them quickly otherwise it has no practical use in the modern game which Mm. goes so quickly so i think that is just stunning and uh, the way he the the way he how to put it the way he glues the team together Mm -hmm. um and you know that when you 
when you find Pedri, it will be in a good position because he picks his, his spaces um, very, very intelligently. And then very, very often when he gets on the ball, the whole thing just accelerates. You know, the movements around him are good. The delivery of the passes, you know, on the right foot, to a player on the move, rarely place it backwards just for circulation purposes. That's also needed, obviously. But it's it's usually like, you know, he ups the tempo a notch when he gets on the ball. And it is, I guess this is also a slightly modern thing of someone who is, you know, he has the, the one-on-one dribbling skills, the ability to get past someone of an, you know, elite 9, 10 out of 10 winger. But he also has the passing qualities of a, you know, 10 out of 10 playmaker. And it used to be that there was a big separation between those two skill sets. You know, you you rarely had players who were that technically proficient who would also become brilliant passers. And he just seems to be both. It's incredible. I think it's to do with um, uh, instinctively and uh, midfield playmaker is what's kind of natural to his game, I think, originally. And I think it's the way that Barcelona set up that the wingers or the wider forwards um, are supposed to be, you know, tucked in a bit. Mm. Um, and they're, they're obviously a lot more uh, involved in the build-up phase than a traditional wide. The next Zeman winger, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> Which is a whole other thing. Yeah, for the hipster. Uh, that was for the hipster listeners. But yeah, again, it's I, I find it difficult to, like you said, the way he slides past players with the ball. Is glued to his feet, purposeful, with an intent, with an idea of what of how you build the move. Um, not just not playing the first movement, waiting for the right movement. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's extraordinary, uh, Lars. Well, I mean, we're, we're running out of nice things to say about him, but he is. I mean, is, is, there are very few flaws. It's hard to think of any flaws. He he's not going to win a ton of tackles per game, I guess, but you don't need him to, so it's not a problem. Uh, you know, he does good work in the press and all of that. Uh, but it's interesting we've established that we think the player at number two is almost flawless. So that leads us to an interesting discussion about why he's number two, and I think that's a good way of framing that because number one, and I think I don't disagree with this at all. Number one is a certain Jude Bellingham. An absolutely incredible player. I've said that about a few people, but uh, my word. Uh, Jude Bellingham, midfielder for Borussia Dortmund in England. He is truly, truly remarkable. He is. Um, It wasn't heavily debated, actually. I think all the people on my sounding board, I think they agreed that he he would be the number one. And uh, the word that most of them used were basically complete. And at the age of 19... Well, he's, he's got 100 and I think he's closing in on 200 games at senior level in all competitions, which is incredible. So from the moment, I think he had a spell when he arrived at Dortmund just at the start of the season where he was, um, where he tended to come off the bench. But since then, I think from the turn of 2020, 21, I think he's been, he's been a regular and he's probably been the first on the team sheet. But but even then, I mean, he was 16. And, and I remember when he went over and hearing from, you know, from the Jungle Telegraph, if that's, I forget if that's a phrase in English, on the grapevine, on the rumor mill, that the word out of Dortmund was that people were completely gobsmacked. No, he was 17, sorry. He was 17. People were completely gobsmacked by how ready he was. The, the idea that they, they knew they were buying a talented player. 
but you you say he didn't go straight into the team but they already then they were like oh my god like this this player is so far ahead of of any kind of development schedule and they felt already then that he he could play and that's not something they were expecting I think he had just turned uh, 17 mm. and even equally remarkable is that he he had just turned 16 when he was when he got his first taste of uh championship football uh at Birmingham uh, playing as a kind of a inverted uh, winger on the left uh, in the championship just um reiterate that which is not the most youth friendly no environment to be uh, <laughs> not really not really to be introduced to yeah i think you're right that uh, when he arrived at dortmund i think they probably were thinking wow we we made a pretty decent signing here you know they had the success of uh, <laughs> of, of sancho that had come from uh, the man city academy and they probably were thinking well if you can make an impact like uh, half of the impact of sancho we've we've got a good deal on us on our hands and and i think they even they didn't quite realize how good he would eventually um, become. And um, yeah, in, I think that going back to the Pedri uh, thing, perhaps there is a bit of um, uh, some kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it cognitive dissonance, as maybe taking it too far, but I think there's an element of us being used to these very skillful, creative type, not trequartista. Now I'm I'm digging deep into the hipster uh, esoteric uh, dictionary here, but uh, these creative, beautifully gifted technical players on the last third, uh, and maybe we starting to take them a little bit for granted. Mm. But the emergence of a proper archetypical number eight, yeah. Uh, yeah, we haven't seen for maybe decades because the English footballer obviously has given us some of the best number eights in recent time. Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, box to box players can defend, can attack, score, go goals. But Bellingham, without comparing him to them, because they were, and let's see where Bellingham is in three or four years, whether he'd go into double figures. But it's been very hard to find proper number eights in international football at the, at the highest level. And everyone is looking for them. And I think the people that I consulted, I think they were also speaking a bit from professional viewpoint that mm. in the sense that they, if there was one player that they would have wanted in their team, and that would solve a lot of, um, solve a lot of tactical issues would be Bellingham. Mm. And these were people are working at the top end of the game. So I just think... You know, it's the athleticism, it's, it's, it's the capability of, of carrying the ball over long distances with, I don't know, he's six foot two, uh, 186 centimeters, I think. So it's got the physicality as well. And funnily enough, um, as again, your fantastic listeners would probably know that he was a bit of a YouTube star when he was... Um, when he was a kid and um, his physical development came I think relatively late so he was like a bit of a kind of number 10 wizard that just ran past opponents and scored goals for fun and add to that that he's done a done a few shifts for Birmingham City as a left-sided <laughs> midfielder and now he's a number eight uh, who's a great defender as well good in the air too and it's all about this kind of practical application of his skills, Lars. Mm. And the mentality is just completely out of this world. Carries the team, 
even when Dortmund are not performing particularly well or England, he, he turns up and plays like a leader. And um, it's, it's just um, beyond belief. Yeah, and obviously I make an effort to watch games from all the major European leagues. Uh, I try at least. I do watch uh, a number of Dortmund games in a normal season as well. But obviously I did watch them more than usual last season because Alan Holland was there. Uh, and and it, and it did stand out that you had this eighteen-year-old kid in midfield bossing everyone around. Like this isn't normal. <laughs> this is pretty extraordinary. And um, you know, picking up from the YouTube uh, past as a kind of a predominantly flair player who was a, a a good goal scorer, creative on the last third. He's also extremely competitive. And maybe the most remarkable uh, stat of all, you know, the whole list is that, you know, he enters 19, 19 challenges per game, um, <laughs> of which he comes out on top um, at the rate of 55%, which is also um, pretty good. And he's great in the air. I think I looked at um, progressive carries, which are important, I think, three uh, per 90 minutes, six dribbles per 90 minutes, I think, at a success rate of around 60%. And, he, you know, breaking lines, um, it, it's, it's, just, um, it's just such a useful player. And if you wanted to, and he has, he has featured in that role some occasionally for, for Dortmund. You can also play him as an out-and-out out out number six if you want. But, of course, you don't, again, you don't want to put him in, in a straight jacket. You want that energy mm. and you, you want his capability of, of carrying the ball uh, forward. And you want him arriving in the box, uh, which he does. Uh, and you want his creativity further up the pitch. So, But he could... I, I think if you even put him as a centre-back... He would have no problem just slotting in there and mm-hmm. and 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 uh, leading from the back and talking, getting the back um, three or four, or five, whatever, organized talking. So I think, you know, he could ultimately play any position. Maybe even goalkeeper, Lars. He could he probably mm. he probably save penalties for all I know. No, uh, he he is incredible and. Um... Yeah, it's going to be uh, quite some bidding war, I suspect, this summer. I mean, again, we... Where do you see him um, fitting in? Well, he would... It's a stupid question. He'd fit in anywhere. But where do you see... What is the best match? Okay, so so the obvious clubs that get mentioned the most are Liverpool, Real Madrid, and Man City, right? And and to my very untrained-brained... There seems to be sort of pros and cons of both. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, you'd say he'd be perfect for Liverpool, the sort of high-octane Jurgen Klopp thing. But obviously with them being at maybe the end of a cycle and the start of a new one, and you don't quite know where they are, it seems like a less obvious destination. Very likely to miss out on the Champions League. Does Klopp stay? You know, Does that rebuild work out? I mean, there are a lot of like... You're, you're taking on a lot of unknowns, which you don't necessarily need to take on. It would be a brave move for him. It would be an interesting move, but probably less likely now than it would have been a couple of years ago. And that leaves you, I guess, with, with City and Real Madrid. And with City, he, he has a good relationship with Erling Haaland, as, as far as we know. Um, he's not an obvious Pep Guardiola player, but then there's kind of interesting things happening at City in terms of 
bringing Holland in, giving uh, Jack Grealish a bigger role. It, it feels like they're trying to like develop away from the sort of typical a team of David Silva's ideal that we like to think Guardiola has. And then, of course, there's Real Madrid, where you could see him fitting in, but we just discussed, like, they already have <laughs> one of the best midfields in the world for the next decade lined up there. <laughs> so where does he fit in, really? So, so a lot of interesting questions. Um, I, I don't think there is an obvious answer, which I guess is why that'll be a, a topic debated on many airwaves in the next couple of months. What do you think? For starters, I, I don't think Man United or Chelsea would 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 uh, stay out of a of a race. I'm sure they've also sounded him out and are watching developments very carefully. And I think it's the kind of player you you don't really worry too much about the what you already got or the tactical aspect because I think <laughs> you just get him. Yeah, because when and I think that is the bottom line of the Real Madrid interest. I think they. They're always there or thereabouts when the best young players in the world become available. And if I don't think he would worry about going there. I think at some point Kroos and Modric will have to will have to call it a day. And then you're left with, as we discussed, Valverde, Camavinga, Chomeni, and I think as a fourth, you know, adding him to those three, I don't think that will be kind of a you need a certain level of rotation and uh, you, you will find a way to build a team around oh. such a player. I, I, I mean, I, I, I should specify more. I'm, I wouldn't worry. I mean, I'm sure he would find his way if he went there. I was just thinking, is that Real Madrid doesn't have an infinite budget anymore. So if they're going to drop 150, maybe even 200 million on someone, is that the position they do it in? Well, they, they, magically, they tend to find the money when, uh, <laughs> when uh, talents of a certain uh, magnitude uh, pairs gettable. Uh, so... I wouldn't rule them out, but yeah. But I also think I think with Man City, I agree with the Liverpool take. I think for him, uh, it might be, he might fancy a challenge, but uh, I would expect that his main priority would be winning uh, things. Um, Liverpool will still win things, but I don't think they will are the natural. It's not the first club name you drop if you were going to name a potential Champions League winner the next four or five years. Um, whereas... And they're for sale. You don't know who might buy them and whether or not they're good at running a football club. So so what Liverpool is three years from now, we don't know. No, and you don't know about um, obviously flop uh, situation. Might I know he's contracted for another uh, three years, but that might change with I don't know whether the club is technically for sale anymore, but they are definitely looking for investment. But what is clear, however, that um, Man City, uh, Real Madrid, uh, Manchester United uh, and Chelsea, they seem to not just rally around the top talents in the world, but they also seem very ambitious in terms of strengthening the team. And the, li- the budgets don't seem to have obvious limits or limitations. But I, I think, again, for Pep Guardiola, I think it's comparable to a certain extent to the Holland situation, that mm. he might not fit the presumed uh, Guardiola archetypical footballer. But when, again, when a young kid with such a complete skill set uh, and um, consistent level of 
top performances come on offer. I'm not saying he's on offer technically, but I think even yeah. Dortmund would know that uh, you know he will not stay there for good. Guardiola will not just he he <laughs> he, he will find a way to 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 uh, make it work. Slot him into the team definitely. And you can imagine just on a number of levels if you have a group of Alling Holland who he knows already. You can imagine him, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden with Kevin De Bruyne knocking around and Alling Holland putting the ball in the goal. That's going to be deeply unpleasant for anyone to play against for quite a long time into the future, I think. And if you look at um, De Bruyne's... Uh, I mean, De Bruyne is not the spring chicken anymore. He's yeah. into his 30s. You're never going to find the identikit replacement. You, you, I mean... You, you're never going to find exactly the same play with the same skill set, although people tend to think that because they play far too much football manager, uh, <laughs> in which you, you, you can kind of design, you know, around numbers, you can kind of find the, the direct replacement. I think there's even a button, find similar player. <laughs> I, think, I, I think they have an actual button for it. Uh, okay. Well, but uh, you, could, you could also see Bellingham doing some of the same stuff that De Bruyne is doing. Yeah. And with, uh, with certain tweaks, I think that could work. And, and if he if he does slightly different things, the point is that when De Bruyne gradually ages out, the team will need a new leader, you know, whether that's a leader in the dressing room or more of the sort of continental, a technical leader, as they say, the guy people look to, the guy who is in charge, who is the boss on the field. I mean, currently that is De Bruyne. But you're right, uh, a couple of years in the future, that's probably not going to be the case. And you have a, a successor right there. So, I mean, that's, it's easy to imagine. And you talk about some clubs not having budgetary restrictions. Man City definitely don't have budgetary restrictions. I mean, they're, they're the least restricted of all of them, surely. So um, it does uh, make an awful lot of sense, doesn't it? It, it does. Um, we'll have to see what happens with these ongoing um, FFP um issues that's kind of a x factor but anyway we we're discussing on basis of clubs operating the way they have been doing for the past past five years but i also think man united is um probably a dark horse here because if indeed um they um the club changes hands over the next uh, weeks or months. I think, you know, what, what, whatever noises are coming from the much briefed PR, <laughs> PR departments or media departments of these prospective owners, I think it is obvious as proven by the new owners at Chelsea. You, you're almost obliged to, to make a little bit of a spending spree when you arrive because it comes with it co it comes with the with the package of buying a new club mm. and who else would you want to join you as a part yeah you know there is no other player you'd rather that photo shoot with the with the new owner andrew bellingham that that is what you want up on the wall and uh doing the rounds on uh, social media for months yeah and i guess i've kind of gotten used to not considering united for these sort of top 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 deals but of course if you're uh Sheikh Yassim or Sir Jim Radcliffe, whichever one it ends up being, your pitch to Jude Bellingham would be, listen, you know, whatever happened before, it's not happening anymore. This is the biggest uh, football franchise in the world. We're, we're going to make it. Well, I'm sorry, Real Madrid fans, Barcelona fans, but I think it, that's what you would say anyway. <laughs> and, and we're going to take it back to the top. We're not going to spend a ton of money on like servicing debt every year. <laughs> We're going to be ambitious. We're going to sign all the biggest players. 
and we're going to put you right at the heart of this project and this is going to be your team. That's a pretty good pitch. It's a, it's a logical pitch and um, I think that will be the approach of um, any of these bidders. And I, I, and I think, uh, you know, whoever comes in to take over Man United, given the, the, the past, the past uh, 15 years, um, I think everyone expects, um, expects them to build a, a new winning uh, team. And Bellingham would be, you know, not only is there a, there is a spot for him there, you know, uh, I mean, whichever way you look at it, he would go in and improve that midfield and he would also be a leader. For me, it would be, and, and I don't think it's a hard sell to, to, to Bellingham either. And neither, neither is Chelsea. As much as they got Andre Santos coming and they got pretty impressive midfield already. But as I said, these owners and even the top managers, they don't necessarily worry too much about fitting the best under 21 player in the world tactically into the team you know if you're asked in a board meeting do you want Jude Bellingham your answer <laughs> is yes <laughs> and you know bad bad luck for you Mateo Kovacic but this is how it goes <laughs> <laughs> no uh no that's um that's true it's going to be an interesting summer for sure a, a tremendous list you've put together I don't think there was anything that I was like, oh, I don't agree with that. I think that that this is all good. And, and thanks for taking all this time to discuss it with me. I think this has been very interesting. And, and as always is the case with these lists, it's not like the, the names and the order of them in itself that's interesting. It's the discussion around it. And I think anyone who's listened to these episodes have uh, have learned something about various players. And you've been enormously generous with your time. Uh, I, I, I thank you very much for that, uh, to Christian. And uh, I'm going to let you go now. You, you, you're, I'm going to permit you to return to society. <laughs> <laughs> you can escape from the. You can. You, you'll be allowed to escape from the resort. I've extracted a huge amount of football knowledge from you. It's been a pleasure, yeah. Lars, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope the listeners haven't been too. Um, that they're not too burdened by the fact that we've done a bit of a marathon uh, session here. And um, yeah, there, there'll be some um, details uh, missing, possibly. People might disagree with certain um, descriptions and even the order, but as you say, rightfully, Lars, that is also part of... Um, you know, putting together a list is the discussion and the, the engagement and actually the whole process uh, behind it. It's, 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 it's good fun. And it's been good fun talking to you, Lars. It's uh, as always. Thank you. That's very kind of you, sir. Uh, thanks for everything. Uh, I'll let you go now. What a session that was. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> right. There you have it. The best 39 players in the world, age 21 and younger. Did you agree with the list? Is there anything that you really hated on it? Anything that just kind of set you off in a big way? Was there a player where you reckon to Christian and the people he's discussed this with uh, in advance that they're completely wrong? Because it is a game of opinions, after all. It is entirely fair to, to disagree and to launch counter-arguments. It's just, as I said in the first of these episodes, I have known this guy for a while, and I've had disagreements with them. It's just I always turn out to be wrong <laughs> as, as time progresses about players. I, I mean, it's, it's a fool's game, I find, very often, trying to disagree too much. So I try not to do that. Anyway, uh, fire any comments or interjections and uh, objections you might have straight at me at Twitter, and I will, I will see 
uh, see see how where that discussion might go. Um, thanks for sticking with me during these three episodes. Slightly different, slightly longer. I am keen on having more guests on at the resort. Maybe not going to do a three epitome marathon special with all of them. Who knows? Uh, but we'll see. Big thank you to Bets on again uh, for supporting us. Normal uh, Lars Resort podding to resume shortly. What are we doing next? Well, there have been some managerial shenanigans that I suspect we shall have to address in some manner. Uh, the relegation battle is pretty wild. We'll probably talk about that. And I did get a tweet from a listener saying basically that we have to do the Arsenal pod before it all goes wrong, to which I only say, you know, relax, man, relax. It's not going to go wrong. I really don't think so. I think they got it. Um, and, and maybe that can be a betting thing. Maybe we can sneak in a betting thing in this one. Because I notice, I mean, Arsenal are 165 with bets on to win the league. And I feel like that is, as a single, I feel like that's a smidge too low to be a value bet, even though I think they will do it. Smart move would have been to trust them a few weeks back when the market still had them at close to 50-50. I certainly missed the boat on that one. Uh, But but my main reason for thinking Arsenal will do it is that I do think City uh, will be, to a large extent, focused on the Champions League, that that will be their main thing. Uh, so how about this let's do a double with arsenal to win the premier league and city to win the champions league that's the thing you can do now with the current odds combining those two you end up with a price of 578 and i think that's a good shout so almost six times your stake for a double of arsenal grabbing that premier league crown with just a monster season that they're having whereas city who are on a mission in Europe, can Pep finally do it? Can uh, Will Alling Holland get them across the line, as I think he just might? We spoke about it in the Holland episode, Bayern are a brilliant team, but they have weaknesses, as we saw, uh, losing to Freiburg uh, this week. You know, it's, it's not all perfect in, in Bavaria. So Arsenal to win the Premier League, City to win the Champions League, a price of 578. Like it. I think that's worth the punt. Anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for sticking with me. And... Uh, hanging out with me and Tokustin over these uh, three episodes. It was very educational for me. Hope it was that for you too. Uh, regular podding to resume shortly. 